0: Well, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 15, which I know already sounds random to you. If you've been coming to Lakeside, you were expecting me to say turn back to 1 Peter because we took a little break from our exposition of 1 Peter to talk about local church leadership and we've been doing a deep dive the last four weeks into what the Bible teaches about the qualifications of elders and deacons and uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I, I feel like I've been down in the depths and dealing with a lot of technical things and, and, and even sensitive matters, uh, I just need to come up uh, to catch my breath and uh, to kind of uh, have a, uh, you know, fresh air in my lungs, if you will. And so I always think about narratives um, and stories, if you will, from the, the Bible that are very helpful, very instructive for us, and they're there for a reason. And so um, this is a a story that's included in the book of Acts, uh, a story that I'm assuming is familiar to most of you, that I thought would be very instructive for us this morning, and uh, really not just an opportunity to to catch our breath, but to uh, think through... Uh, how the Lord would have us to respond when we have disagreements uh, within the body of Christ, and I don't know what your week was like, but uh, last week's sermon about deacons and deaconesses and deacons' wives and uh, lent itself to some very stimulating, profitable, and I trust God-honoring conversations personally in our grow group, um, and uh, amongst our staff and elders, and so it was all really, really good. And so I guess I was just thinking about that, and I thought this text would be a good place for us to, to go to this morning. And so let me read it for you, Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Luke records, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Father, we thank you just for the variety uh, that we find in your word of history and poetry and prophecy and letters and epistles and narratives and stories, and Lord, you use all of them to uh, to train us and equip us and to teach us what you want us to know so we can be who you want us to be. And so as we look at this uh, passage this morning, uh, I ask that your spirit would guide and direct us as we uh, consider what is here and what there is for us to learn and how we can apply this to our lives. May you be glorified and honored as we seek to not just be merely hearers of the word who deceive ourselves, but who put into practice what we hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the most encouraging things to me about the Bible is how its characters are painted in such a realistic light. Even the greatest biblical heroes are described as we say, uh, warts and all. Take David, for example. One minute, we see him bravely standing up to Goliath and valiantly slaying him for the glory of God. And then not long after that, we see him lustfully looking down from his roof at another man's wife as she took a bath and then murdering her husband to cover up his illicit affair with her. How about Peter? One minute he's walking on water and proclaiming that Christ is the Messiah, and the next minute he's sleeping in the garden when he should have been praying, and then if that wasn't bad enough, just a few hours later, he denied that he even knew Jesus Christ. And then there's Paul and Barnabas, the dynamic duo, the Batman and Robin mission team, if you will, who God used to bring the gospel to Asia. And up until this point in the book of Acts, Luke, said, Luke has painted these two men, really, uh, given them a pristine portrait of these two missionaries. And he introduced Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4. Go back there with me, because I, I want you to see the, the background leading up to this um, passage that we're going to look at this morning. But back in chapter 4, we're introduced to Barnabas, Acts chapter 4, verse 36 Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so here was a man who was a great encourager to others. He was also a very generous man and a man who was investing, wanted to invest in the newly born church. And so he was selling things and and contributing the money. The next time Barnabas shows up is in chapter 9, verse 26. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And this is after the conversion of Saul, who would become Paul, the apostle. And it says in verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, talking about Paul... He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. So they all thought, "Eh, no, we're not buying it. This is another one of Saul's tricks, to kind of weasel his way into the inside of the church so that he could arrest us all and have us killed. And so they kept Paul at arm's length, very um, questioning of him, not trusting him. But notice Verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And so Barnabas became an advocate for Paul and and said, hey, Paul, come on, I'll I'll go with you. And he recounted his testimony on behalf of Paul and said, hey, guys, he's legit. This guy's got, got radically saved. And in fact, I actually heard him boldly of proclaiming the gospel in Damascus where he had gone to arrest believers. He he instead was proclaiming the name of Christ. Well, as the newly formed church uh, faced increasing persecution, as you know, they scattered from Jerusalem to other cities and many others returned to Christ as a result. Look at Acts chapter 11. Verse 20, but there were some of them, some of these that were scattered due to persecution, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord, and news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So Barnabas was a a trusted uh, leader in the church in Jerusalem, and, and they said, hey, you need to go and check this out. And so they sent Barnabas, and when he arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And so, again, just some insight into Barnabas' character there a good man, full of the Spirit and of faith. And many more people came to know Christ because of his ministry there, so much so that he felt like he needed some help, he needed some backup. So guess who you think he went looking for? Paul. Verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would be certainly a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge, in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And so Paul and Barnabas, Saul at the time, and Barnabas were, were this, again, this, this, this team, uh, this missionary team, and, uh, uh, or maybe at this point they weren't necessarily missionaries, they were more ministry partners, and so they were sent down to Jerusalem with this offering, they were entrusted with that, and then when they returned from Jerusalem, they were commissioned as missionaries by the church in Antioch. Notice verse um, 25 of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Verse 1, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And the remainder of chapter 13, along with chapter 14, just records Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey as they preached the gospel in Asia Minor and led many to Christ. And in chapter 13, Luke included a seemingly incidental detail that would later result in the falling out between Saul and Barnabas, chapter thirteen, verse thirteen. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And again, at the time, it's just the narrative; it just says what it says, and we don't know why he left them or 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 how that was, uh, how people responded to his departure. We're going to find that out here a bit later. When they returned to Antioch, a group of men from Judea showed up and started teaching the Gentile believers there that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas joined forces again to counteract this heresy. Notice chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and, and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. And so they went on to uh, serve a very influential role at the Jerusalem Council. Um, They were chosen along with a few other men to communicate the verdict to the church in Antioch. Notice verse 12. It says all the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Saul or Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren and they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles. Greetings since we have heard that some of our uh, our number to whom we have no inst- gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So up to this point, what we have learned about Paul and Barnabas is that they were this unstoppable, inseparable, like-minded missionary team. And I think it's insightful to even notice there, it says that we having become one mind, so they were like-minded men. And after the Jerusalem Council, it says that in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of God. And so as they were back in Antioch serving in the church side by side, these two godly, spirit-filled, like-minded men, they began to plan their second missionary journey. And as they did that, to our surprise, these two godly, gifted, faithful men got cross-threaded with each other. And in the next six verses, verses 36 through 41, Luke injected a dose of reality into this narrative and made us aware that this dynamic duo had feet of clay just like the rest of us. These spiritual giants were still imperfect. They were fallible men. You guys know I love Chuck Swindoll, and uh, he's always been a, a hero of mine, and probably because he's just a master at bringing the characters of the Bible to life. And he said the fact that Scripture paints its character so realistically is good news for us. He says we can identify with these people. They're just like us. And if God can use them, he can use us too, amen? And so this is one of the saddest moments in the history of the early church. But it's also one of the most encouraging moments in the history of the early church. Here you have two of God's choicest servants Having a clash of wills, and they were unable to come to a peaceful resolution. A, a difference of opinion on a secondary matter. In other words, this was not a heaven or hell issue here. If you believe this, right, you go to heaven. If you don't believe this, you go to hell. This was a secondary matter, they had a difference of opinion. And yet it caused them to get sideways with each other and neither of them were willing to yield or to defer to one another. And as a result, their model ministry partnership that that God had used to accomplish amazing things came to an end. And these two longtime friends and brothers in Christ parted ways never to minister together again, at least as far as we know from the pages of Scripture. Now, I'm sure that some of you, like me, have experienced a similar confrontation or clash with a longtime friend or a a brother or sister in Christ that has left you feeling, frankly, sick to your stomach. Anybody ever been there, done that? And and it just feels like you got kicked in the gut because this is like, women, we're such good friends. We've, We've got so much water under the bridge, so much history together, and yet... Man, I I can't go there, man. You're you're there and I I can't go there. I can't get there in my mind and heart. In fact, I, I don't think that's right. I think it's wrong. And I'll never forget where I literally had to sit at the feet on the floor next to my original spiritual mentor who at the time had disqualified himself from being in the ministry because of some impropriety with another woman besides his wife, and he had decided to continue on in ministry, and I just, at the time, I I just couldn't get there in my mind and my heart, and I had to lovingly and graciously say, hey, man, I, I love you, but I don't think you should be in the ministry right now. This was the guy that trained me in ministry, and it was a very hard, painful conversation, and it led to a falling out between us, and, 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 and we didn't talk for years after that conversation. And I think as we, we look at this tragic falling out that occurred between Paul and Barnabas, it should motivate us to do everything that we can do to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, while disagreeing with one another about a decision or a doctrine. It is possible to agree to disagree. In other words, there's a way to to say, hey, you know what? We, we, I don't know that we're ever going to agree on this, and, and that's okay, because we can agree to disagree in a way that honors Christ and preserves the unity of his church and advances the cause of Christ in the world, Amen. And so as we look now at these verses, I want us to be reminded as we, as we just consider that the sad, unfortunate disagreement between these two godly, gifted, spirit-filled men, how important it is to resolve conflict biblically, and how God providentially uses even unresolved conflict to further his work in the world and in our lives. I've divided this notorious disagreement into the following three statements. Number one, disagreements are regrettable. Number two, disagreements are resolvable. And thirdly, disagreements are redeemable. Let's look at these three statements one at a time. First of all, disagreements are regrettable. Verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along with, who, along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So again, here's Paul and Barnabas uh, in Antioch, further equipping and building up the body of, of, of Christ there. Paul's heart was burdened for all the other churches that they had planted, during their first missionary journey, so he suggests to Barnabas that they go check up on these churches. And Barnabas wholeheartedly agreed, and they began making preparations for their second missionary journey. And yet, right out of the blocks, they stumble badly. Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark. Colossians 4.10 is where we learn that he was actually Barnabas' was cousin. So he was probably sympathetic to the fact that he was a kin, if you will. But Paul was insistent that he shouldn't go with them since he had deserted them on their first trip. Chapter 13, verse 13. Remember, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now we're given some insight that Paul wasn't happy with John Mark bailing on them right in the, midst, in the middle of their first missionary journey. Now, we don't know for sure why Mark left. I can suggest a few reasons, perhaps. Maybe he wasn't happy with the transition of leadership between his uncle, Barnabas, and this new young upstart, Paul. And it's interesting, as you watch from the moment that Barnabas is introduced in the, in the narrative in, 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 uh, in, in the book of Acts. And then Paul jumps in and they start being mentioned side by side. It, it, it begins with Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Then you start to see it, Barnabas and Paul. And then you start to see Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. So it's almost like they switched positions. Barnabas had been the lead dog initially and he was Paul's advocate, but Paul had, at some point surpassed him as kind of the leader of, of the two. And so maybe John Mark didn't like that, that he liked his uncle being in charge and he maybe um, didn't have the same respect for Paul at the time, perhaps. Um, maybe he didn't like the fact that the, the focus of their ministry turned really away from the Jews to focus on the Gentiles. Maybe he struggled with that refocusing of their mission. Perhaps he was afraid of the danger uh, that they would encounter along the way. We know that Paul said all sorts of things happened to him on all of his missionary journeys. And uh, I mean, from getting shipwrecked to getting, you know, Uh, attacked by wild animals to being, um, you know, robbed and beaten and stoned and left for dead and so perhaps there was uh, fear there in John Mark's heart and mind. Or maybe he was just homesick. Maybe he just wanted to go back home to Jerusalem. He missed his mom. It's okay. Whatever the reason, in Paul's mind, John Mark was unreliable and therefore unqualified to serve with them. And maybe he said something like this: "Hey, Barnabas, he's already proven to us that he can't be trusted. We can't afford the risk of him bailing on us again." Barnabas, on the other hand, the consummate encourager that he was, wanted to give this young man a second chance. So maybe he said, "Well, come on, Paul. We've all blown it at times. We—he—he's got potential. He deserves a second chance." The language that Luke used here indicates that they were very adamant, both very adamant in their opinion. Barnabas wanted to take John. Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them. So neither of them were about to budge. They they were at what we call an impasse. And so the question is, Who was right and who was wrong? Some say Barnabas was wrong for not submitting to Paul's authority as the apostle. Barnabas wasn't an apostle. Paul was the apostle, clearly chosen by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so in some sense, I think that's perhaps what happened was Barnabas was beginning to defer more and more to Paul, understanding God's design for his life and ministry, Furthermore, the fact that that Barnabas and John Mark left without the blessing of the church, at least it's not here in the text, it just says that that, um, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. I mean, you could read into that and say, well, it kind of seems like he took his ball and went home, right? Or just went to go do his own thing. Again, I'm reading into the text, obviously, not trying to paint Barnabas in a bad light at all, just trying to say, show you how subjective this thing is as they usually are. I think the other, it's interesting, so Barnabas is never mentioned again in the book of Acts after he sailed away. That's the last we ever hear of that guy in the book of Acts. So some would say, well, these things prove that Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong. You want my opinion? This is my opinion? Okay. I think they were both right and they were both wrong. They were both right in that they were simply looking at the situation from two different perspectives. We all have different perspectives because we all have different backgrounds and experiences and temperaments and personalities and convictions and preferences and opinions. And these differences are often why we have disagreements. A couple years ago, the staff read, the pastoral staff read a really helpful little book called Sticky Teams by a guy named Larry Osborne, a pastor in California. And the subtitle was Keeping Your Leadership Team and Staff on the Same Page. And he said this, and I quote, and he was just talking about the dynamic of a, of a leadership team, like an elder board or a pastoral staff. He says, a corporate executive... Self-employed, a self-employed contractor, a middle manager, and a school administrator will always see things differently. So he's just kind of saying, yeah, you've probably got a little bit of everything on your leadership team, uh, on your elder board, if you will. Their educational and professional backgrounds give them radically different points of reference. The man who argues for putting retreads on the church van is a long-time hourly wage earner. He and his wife love garage sales. The person who insists on new tires has a management background and has never bought anything secondhand in his life. That's reality. That's the dynamic sometimes when you're trying to make decisions together. And then he went on to say this, the fact is many of the fiercest conflicts and battles in a church board are triggered by different experiences and paradigms that we aren't even aware of. And when we fail to understand and appreciate these, these different experiences, these different paradigms, if you will, conflict and division inevitably occur. And I think we need to come to grips with the fact that, that division and conflict is a fact of life in a fallen world. It's just life in a sinful, sin, in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Disagreements are undesirable, yes, but they are unavoidable. Even good, godly, spirit-filled people don't always agree on everything. And disagreeing is not necessarily a sign of being carnal or fleshly, it's just part of being human. And yet, believers, I think, should be able to disagree with one another without being disagreeable. Big difference, right? And so based on, and this would would be an example of what I'm talking about here or what Larry Osborne was referencing here, talking about, that based on our backgrounds, we all have a different background, we all have different experiences, we all have different temperaments. And so even as we look at this situation in the text, some of us can easily see Paul's perspective, while others of us can totally appreciate Barnabas' perspective. So I thought it'd be good for us to vote this morning. Because you don't get to vote about anything here at Lakeside, so why not just, let's have a a vote, okay? How many of you think that, I'm just kidding, we're not going to vote about this. But seriously, how many of you think in your mind, in your heart, man, I kind of see Paul's perspective. I probably would have said the same thing that Paul did, or some of you are thinking, well, no, that was kind of harsh, you know, I, I appreciate you know, I'm more of a barnabas, I'm more of an encourager. I want to be gracious, right? I, I would want to give that cut cut poor John Mark some slack. So again, whose perspective was right and whose perspective was wrong? And again, since this was not an issue involving an essential matter, I think we can say that both of them were right in some regard. Paul And Barnabas had equally valid arguments or viewpoints or concerns. And I think that's the way it is in many disagreements. No one is right and no one is wrong. And I think that's why it's so important that we try to look at an issue from the other person's perspective and be able to humbly and honestly say, you know, I can see your point. That's a good argument. I I agree, that's a valid concern about my argument." I think one of the challenges of leadership is being able to examine opposing viewpoints and then arriving at a, at a, at a good solution. Maybe even reaching a, a compromise, if you will, in the good sense of the word. And I think you know, as, as, uh, as elders here at Lakeside, we strive for what we call unanimity. And we function according to the unanimity principle. And what that means is, is that we will not move forward with a decision unless we're unanimous. In other words, it's not like, okay, we got 10 guys, eight of us think it's a good idea, two of us think it's a bad idea. Well, too bad for you two because the majority rules because we're Americans and this is how it works, right? Now we're like, hey, you two guys don't think this is what we should do? Why not? Show us from the Bible why you think this would be the wrong decision or or that we're going in the wrong direction. Talk to us. Okay, those are good points. I appreciate that. We need to consider that. Hey, maybe we need to postpone this decision. Give us a little bit more time to, to discuss it and more importantly, to get on our knees and pray about it. And so we work towards unanimity. And so I look at this situation and while Paul and Barnabas, I guess they were functioning as elders there in the church in Antioch, uh, they were the teachers. They were the sent out missionaries. Well, however you want to, whatever category you want to put them in, they, they, they failed to achieve unanimity on this one. And so at, in that sense, I think they were both wrong. Because it appears that they settled for a bitter stalemate rather than striving for some peaceful solution. So, Disagreements are regrettable. This was a regrettable disagreement. Secondly, however, disagreements are resolvable. Disagreements are resolvable. Look at verse 39. It said, And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus. So, Again, sadly, this is tragic. The, 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 the disagreement was so sharp that, they, that it resulted in them they're just going their separate ways. And the word that Luke used there to describe their disagreement referred to a violent action or emotion, this sharp disagreement. In other words, they were not agreeing to disagree. <laughs> in other words, this was, this was an intense conflict. This uh, apparently was a major blowup which resulted in Barnabas taking John Mark with him to the island of Cyprus and Paul taking Silas and heading for Syria and Cilicia. Now again, I know I'm already sounding like an armchair apostle or a Monday morning quarterback, right? Looking at this, right, Looking back on it, thinking, well, this is what they should have done. And if they had just done this, then they could have done this. And this is what I would have done. And right. But, but let me just suggest a couple creative compromises, perhaps, that they could have possibly agreed upon that would have kept them from having to part ways. Maybe they could have agreed to putting John Mark on some sort of probationary period. Barnabas could have suggested, hey, man, if it doesn't work out the first month, we'll ship him home. Well, we'll send him home ourselves. Paul could have suggested, well, why don't we give him a small assignment here in Antioch and if he's faithful to do that, then we'll send for him. We'll have him catch up with us once he proves himself faithful again. They could have also agreed to bring others along with them so if John Mark did abandon them again, they wouldn't be left hanging uh, out there like apparently they were the first time. One commentator put it this way, Quote, either the inventiveness of love should have discovered some middle ground or the submission of love should have yielded the point entirely. Either the inventiveness of love should have discovered some middle ground or the submission of love should have yielded the point entirely. Again, this is just a reminder that that interpersonal conflicts can be very complicated and very difficult to unravel but if you truly love the other person and you care about your relationship with them, you will face the issue and pursue reconciliation with God's help and pray that with God's help, you can work it out. Look at at Philippians chapter four real quick. Here's another well-known clash between Christian co-workers in the New Testament. And I think it's very instructive. We can learn a lot from this account of Yodi and Syntyche. Remember those two ladies? Philippians chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You imagine me getting up here on a Sunday morning and calling out two of you and say, oh, by the way, y'all know this person, y'all know this person. And uh, they're having an open tiff with each other. And we all know about it. And I'm calling them out this morning in front of everybody. That they got to deal with this. They got to resolve this. That's essentially what Paul was doing here in his letter. And we don't know much about this conflict other than it was serious enough for Paul to address it publicly. But there are some directions that he gave in these verses In order to help these gals resolve their conflict. And I think these directions can be used to resolve any conflict in our lives, whether it's with our our spouse or our our child or our parent or our brother or sister or maybe our boss, uh, maybe an employee, a fellow church member. Let me give you these little five principles really quick. Number one, don't run away from conflict. Don't run away from conflict. Notice he says, stand firm in the Lord remain resolute in the face of trial temptation don't waver don't crumble under the pressure hang in there don't quit conflict is inevitable there's no such thing as a conflict-free marriage or a conflict-free family or a conflict conflict-free workplace or a conflict-free neighborhood or a conflict-free church so don't walk out on your spouse. Don't run away from home. Don't quit your job. Don't move out of your subdivision. Don't leave your church because you have some disagreement. Stand firm. And you know, I think too many Christians spend their whole lives running away from conflict. And then and they leave just a whole bunch of loose ends blowing around in the, in the air in their lives. These unresolved. Issues with others. Matthew 23, excuse me, Matthew 5, 23, if you know that you're, if you're bringing your offering to the Lord and you know your brother has something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave it there and go be right with your, with your brother or sister. That's if, if apparently you sinned against someone, you offended someone, you found that out, you wanna go make that right. Maybe you've been the one who was sinned against or offended. Matthew 18 says if your brother sins, go to him. In other words, it's never right to run away or even sit and wait with your arms crossed for the other person to come to you. We should run toward the conflict, and ideally, we should meet each other halfway, right? Both coming to make it right. And so I think it just begins, the resolving conflict begins with a commitment to pursue biblical reconciliation. Secondly, take responsibility for your part in the conflict. Take responsibility for your part in the conflict. Notice he says, I urge you Odi and I urge Sintiki. Paul was holding both of these gals responsible for the problem. They were both at fault in some way. And I think this is a good reminder that whenever we have a conflict with someone, it's a lot easier to see what they've done to us rather than what we've maybe done to them. We are experts at blame shifting, at finger pointing. And as long as we keep focusing on what the other person did or didn't do, the conflict will never be resolved. The first thing we need to do is examine our own lives right? to to see what we may have done or are doing to contribute to the conflict. This is Matthew chapter 7. Why, you hypocrites, are you trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a big old honking log in your own eye? So there must be not only mutual recognition of fault, but there must also be mutual repentance and mutual forgiveness. Jesus taught us this in Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Number three is maintain Christ-like attitudes and actions. Notice as I urge Yodian, I urge Santiki to live in harmony in the Lord. And you just have to go back to chapter two of Philippians where it says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the personal interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he was god set that aside came to earth to die in the most humiliating way ever known to man death on a cross so you want to know what it's the heart the root of that conflict or that disagreement oftentimes it's somebody's being selfish or somebody's being prideful or both And humility is the key to unity here. We need to be more concerned for others than we are for ourselves. That's what Jesus did. And it was Christ's humble, selfless servant attitude and actions that motivated him to leave heaven and come to earth to die so we could experience reconciliation with God. And so if we want to experience reconciliation with other people, we need to demonstrate these same Christ-like attitudes and actions. Number four, work together to resolve the conflict. Work together to resolve the conflict. I think it's interesting. He says, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. True companion, that word means yoke fellow. The idea is like oxen coming together and pulling the same load. This could have been a personal name, Suzagas. Um, this could have been an elder in the church in, in, in Philippi. And so Paul perhaps was appealing to this, this leader to live up to his name and to come alongside these gals and help them as they sought, rec, to, sought to reconcile their differences. And I think sometimes people just need help, they've, they've tried. They've done everything they know what to do to kind of get right with one another and they still aren't right. And so sometimes I think a third party is, is helpful. And in fact, the scripture sets us up to be that person. Galatians 6.1, if you see your brother overtaken in a fault, you are spiritual or to what? Restore them in a spirit of gentleness and humility. Matthew 18 talks about if you go and you try to help someone uh, be reconciled and they don't listen or they, 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 you kind of hit a snag and, and, and you go get some other people and you bring you know, one or two other witnesses uh, to help. And so really church discipline, if you think about it, is a means that God has given the church to help people resolve conflict and, and to overcome sin in our lives. And then lastly, uh, contend for the cause of Christ. Contend for the cause of Christ. I love this. He says, Help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. That word struggle is athleo, it's the word we get athlete from. And so he likens these women to, to fellow athletes competing alongside each other, they were teammates. And he's recalling how these two ladies used to to play on the same team and now they won't pass the ball to each other. Or they fought in the same army in the battle for the gospel, but now they had crossed swords with one another or they aimed their guns at each other. And the implication here is that he wanted them to stop fighting with each other so they could get back to the business of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's probably the biggest tragedy whenever a church experiences internal conflict is they lose sight of the goal. And they're wasting all their their time putting out fires in the church that they miss the opportunity to share Christ with the community and the world. You need to always remember that our purpose as a church, our purpose as Christians is not to contend with each other but to contend together for the cause of Christ. Amen? Amen? Back to Acts 15, and we'll wrap this up. Disagreements are regrettable, disagreements are resolvable, and lastly, disagreements are redeemable. Disagreements are redeemable. Notice verse 39, there was a sharper disagreement. They separated from one another. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria, Celestia strengthening the churches. Again, Barnabas sadly disappeared from the book of Acts. Luke never mentioned him by name again in this narrative. But Paul did mention Barnabas's name several times in his letters to the churches. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he spoke about Barnabas in a very charitable way. Um, And he did the same in in Galatians, several times in Galatians, um, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, talking about um, uh, his partnership with Barnabas. This was part of Paul's journey as a Christian, that God brought this encouraging man named Barnabas into his life to, to kind of be his advocate, to stand in the gap for him. And then he mentions him again in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that verse where we find out that he was actually Mark's uncle, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you, welcome him, interesting, not only did Paul mention Barnabas in his letters, more importantly, he mentioned John Mark. And here he says, oh, by the way, you know John Mark, Barnabas' cousin? If he comes to you, don't shun him as a knucklehead. Welcome him. Something changed over the course of time in Paul's heart towards John Mark in his relationship with John Mark, Philemon, Philemon. Chapter twenty, or verse twenty-three. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So he's including Mark in the list of his fellow workers. And I love Second Timothy, uh, chapter four, verse eleven. 2 Timothy, chapter four, verse eleven. Only Luke is with me. This is when Paul was in that Mamertine prison, that underground dungeon, ready to be beheaded. Uh, executed by Nero for the cause of Christ. He says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. I mean, this thing, you see how this story comes full circle? You got what? You got Paul, you got Luke who wrote Acts and now you got Mark. So John Mark became a useful Ministry partner to Paul, he's also probably most known, best known for the fact that he wrote the gospel that bears his name. He was really a disciple of Peter, probably more than anyone, and so Peter passed on all that he had learned about Christ and Mark put it down in his gospel. And so based on Paul's favorable references to both Barnabas and John Mark, I think we can assume that they were eventually reconciled that God worked this out over time and God continued to use all of them despite the difficulty they they had in resolving their differences. In fact, I would submit to you this, that God actually used the conflict to double their impact. Because instead of just one missionary team being sent out from Antioch, now you had two. And so they were able to cover twice as much ground as a result of this disappointing uh, disagreement. And so Satan's attempt to stall the progress of the gospel by stirring up this spiritual spat between Paul and Barnabas backfired what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. And so even though they ended up parting ways, Over a difference of opinion, they both still agreed on what mattered most, and that was the necessity of sharing the gospel with the world. Amen? And they were both committed to that. They were united in what truly mattered most, what was most important. I hope this passage doesn't come across to you as some excuse for conflict. But it should comfort us to know that God is able to use sharp disagreements and unresolved conflict for his glory and for our good. I'll end with this comment from the NIV application commentary. Quote, because God is greater than the problem, we can always live with the hope of resolution. That hope will enable us to look beyond that hurt to the day when we will rejoice in a relationship restored. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this helpful narrative, this little story that would be easy just to kind of breeze over, but there's so much here for us. I just pray that you would continue to grant us grace as a church to be mature enough and loving enough to be able to, to, to agree to disagree on things and and, and know uh, how to do that well, and uh, we're so grateful for Paul and Barnabas, and, and Lord, we would not be here today studying your word were it not for those, the faithfulness of those two godly men. And we look forward to meeting them in heaven, and um, I just pray that we would learn from this example uh, today and apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.